The long-awaited decision in the Huey Newton murder trial, which has drawn worldwide attention, is now very near. The jury of seven women and five men are deliberating the fate of the Black Panther leader on the eighth floor of that building. It is their job to decide whether he is guilty of killing Oakland policeman John Fry and wounding Officer Herbert Haynes in a pre-dawn shootout last October 28th. Two floors above the jury in his cell, Huey Newton, who has made almost no show of emotion during the eight weeks of trial, calmly awaits the decision of the jury. I talked to Newton in the jail. Uh, as far as the, the proceedings uh, thus far, that uh, uh, the courts uh, have only reflected the racist uh, attitude of the general power structure, that I haven't received a fair trial, that I should not have been indicted in the first place. I was indicted by a blue ribbon grand jury, uh, a middle class white grand jury that w did not represent a cross section of the community. You say you don't feel you've had a fair trial? No. Why? Uh, number one, that the uh, the judge have uh, has been very racist throughout uh, the proceeding, very pro-prosecution, that uh, I don't feel that I should have been tried at all. And uh, if I had been tried, if there was an inkling of, uh, of reason to try me, I should not have been tried for first-degree murder. Uh, that if the judge had not been a racist, that he would have uh, he would have amended the charges uh, to uh, uh, to a manslaughter, uh, perhaps. Uh, the very fact that he didn't dismiss the whole charge uh, reflects his racism. Some of your supporters have said that the trial that you are a political prisoner that are oppressing people of color all over the world and on a local level, the police, fashion police are are uh, suppressing, repressing uh, the white revolutionaries as well as the blacks who uh, speak of and who are attempting to attain uh, liberation. So uh, I am not standing for violence, uh, but I do stand for self-defense. Welcome back everyone. Welcome back moment, to another uh, great episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. Uh, this is your host, Mr. Chase H. We are tackling the amazing, the historic, the legendary Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. This is Black History Month. We are discussing real life heroes. They existed, they were titans. They represented more than just themselves. They represented the community and the a, international community uh, of the oppressed. The Ape Academy podcast will not talk about uh, cookie-cutter third and fourth grade black history project figures. That's not reducing their importance, but what we want to do is we want to hit on the nitty-gritty. We want to really break apart what the black liberation movement, what black history really is on the street in real life. God bless you all. I hope y'all enjoy this podcast. I had a great time researching. This is just the first part. We're going to do at least four parts, all right? We're going to take it slow. Cops used to come around, you know, in my neighborhood. All right, you kids, stop having so much fun. Move along. Oh, they'd arrest me, you know, especially at night. They have a curfew, right? They get to be home by 11, Negroes 12. And you'd be trying to get home, you know, doing your crew runs. They always catch you out in front of a store or something. Because you'd be taking shortcuts, right? Cops. Put your hands up, black boy. Ah! I don't want to hurt nobody We just came here to party See a few dames exchange some names I'm a top shot, the kid stay in your lane The cop shot, the kid, same old same Pour out a little liquor, champagne for pain Slap boxing in the street Crack the hygiene in the heat Cop cars on the creek Doing they roundups, we just watch for the sweet. Yeah, it's hotter than July. It's the summer when it's die. It's the summer when it's ride. Together we'll be strong, but forever we divide. It's good to join you guys again. It's your host, Mr. Chase H. I am going to say that a hundred times an episode, all right? Welcome to the Ape Academy podcast. We are celebrating black history this entire month. Black history is American history. It's every day for us. But in February, we put a special focus on the legendary black figures 
of American history. We're not talking about fifth grade history projects, guys. We're going to really get into the nitty gritty on some stuff people might not want to talk about. The Black Panther Party is controversial for some reason. We're going to talk about the environment that they grew up in. This is what today's episode is about. I hope you all enjoy it because I know I enjoyed researching it. I enjoyed presenting it. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this series. We're going to do it in four parts. All right, guys? Hope you enjoy it. Hey. All right, all right, all right. We are doing, as usual, our administrative home, uh, what's it called, homekeeping? No, housekeeping. <laughs> housekeeping stuff. All right, so housekeeping. I do the same thing every single episode. What I really want you guys to do, please, I beg you, turn on your post notifications. What that means is when we have a new episode that is streaming, you'll get a notification as you're watching the Ozarks on Netflix. Bing! You'll hear that. That means that the Ape Academy podcast has a new episode out. Therefore, you won't fall so far behind that you just give up and you're like, you know what? I'll never catch up. I'll just forget it. Forget the Ape Academy podcast. Nope. We want you guys to hear everything we have to say. We want you guys to enjoy every new episode. So if you could please do that, that would go a long way. Also, what you can do to help us out if you have some time, subscribe to our podcast, right? Subscribe. Give us a rating, like five stars would be great, okay? Five stars only, all right? <laughs> and if you have a few minutes, a few minutes of your time, you can write a quick review saying how amazing we are. It will really help us because what I want to do, what we want to do here at the podcast if you want to try to break into the top 100, that is a lofty goal. But guess what we do here? That's what we do here. We we make lofty, ambitious goals, and then we go after them. So that's our goal, and we're going to get it in 2022. It's going to take a lot of work, but with you guys, I know we can do it. I love all my domestic and international listeners. Thank you so much for showing support to us. You are the reason why I spent so much time researching, reading book after book after book, highlighting, writing notes and essays that I use to organize my thoughts and organize the freaking fire hose of information that is constantly flowing through my brain. So thank you so much for joining me once again. I appreciate everybody. All right, so what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about the Black Panthers. We're going to talk about them for the next few episodes. We have an entire month. By coincidence, it's actually the shortest month of the year. For some reason, it's Black History Month. I don't know if that's coincidental or done on purpose. But uh, <laughs> we have a little bit shorter time to work with this month. But we're going to hammer out a lot of episodes. That means a lot of work for me. So I really hope that you guys enjoy all these episodes. All right. Today... Our episode is entitled Left Behind the Forgotten Black Ghettos of the Civil Rights Era. So the purpose of this part one podcast is really to set the tone. I want to put you guys there. I want you guys to, wherever you're listening to this, whether it be in a shower, hanging out in your bed, driving on a, on a road trip. If you are driving, please be careful. It's really cold and icy out. Uh, take your time. There's no rush. If you're listening to this, wherever you are, I want you to be transported from wherever you are to the inner city in the 1960s because none of these political, social, economic, cultural movements come out of nowhere. Nothing, as a historian, what I've learned is nothing just happens. Bishop T.D. Jakes taught me that. I, uh, I saw it in one of his, his great sermons. He said, nothing just happens. Every movement in, a, in modern American history has a source. All right? It could be economics. It could be religion. It could be oppression. It could be police brutality. For the Black Panther Party, it was all that. 
all those things, okay? Um, it's not a simple story. It's a very long story. Although the party was only in existence as a real factor, right, as a real influential factor in movement in American society, it was only active in its, in its height for a few years. Those few years, man, it was like 20 years. The cause that they represented really, really did a lot. And I know, and I'm going to tell you this, I know there's a lot of people out there that are listening that's never, maybe they heard of the Black Panthers. All they really know about them is they're militant, they hate white people, they dress in all black, and they have guns and berets and, and sunglasses on. It's not that simple, and it's, un, it's really, really inaccurate information. All right? They weren't like that at all. Did they wear black? Yeah, they loved it. <laughs> and they loved guns too. But they didn't hate white people at all. We're going to discuss this during this series. I want to try to make it, I don't know, I want to make it three parts, but I'm thinking I might have to push it. We'll see. We're, we'll take one one small bite at a time uh, because today is only part one. Once again, thank you guys for tuning in, all my domestic and international listeners. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I am going to try to read it off my outline off this. All right, Left Behind, the Forgotten Black Ghettos of the Civil Rights Era. First things first, the civil rights movements across the country were a success, at least on paper they were. The nonviolent, mostly Christian-based organizations championing black equality they fought the good fight, right? They fought the great fight. They fought a pure fight. They fought a Christian fight. Putting their lives on the line, sacrificing family, careers, reputations, and facing harsh backlash from the American white public, they won. They won in the courts. They were, they were able to snatch headlines in the news media across the American nation, riveting the country with harrowing tales of vicious attack dogs, fire hoses, police beatings, cross burnings, and worse, much worse, murder. All for the cause of racial equality, representation in the governing process, equal access to social institutions, etc. They wanted full citizenship. That was the goal. We're done. We are tired of the second class citizen status that was forced on us as black citizens. We pay taxes. We fought in two world wars. You used us for our blood. You spilled it. You used our bullets. You used our brains. You used our backs. Now we want first class status just like the white folks. Up until this point in history, African Americans had lived in their own insulated black world, completely separate from white America. Most Americans lived separate but parallel lives. They looked at each other through an invisible barrier, a legal and a social invisible barrier, making sure that the races, quote, stayed in their place. One was superior, the other, and we all know who was, inferior. No exceptions, no compromises. However, there's a silver lining, right? <laughs> the insurgent movement of the early 1960s dismantled legal segregation and expanded black enfranchisement, that's a hard word to say, black voting in the U.S. <laughs> the heroic efforts of these pioneers cemented the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, despite stiff resistance from bigoted segregationists like Alabama's governor, Mr. George C. Wallace, and many other so-called states' rights advocates. But like many human rights movements throughout history, once there was little legal inequality left to fight against, the movement, at least the movement as we see it today in the movies like Selma, in the, the, a lot of the Martin Luther King documentaries, that movement, it disintegrated rapidly. After the death of Martin Luther King, after the passage of these, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, these civil rights organizations that were able to muster thousands of people for their rally, 
they were able to really, really control a lot of political and social capital, they freaking disintegrated, like, in front of our eyes. This was partially because the movement was a nonviolent Christian-based effort led mostly by well-educated, middle-class students, professionals, religious leaders, and local politicians. Everything was done with the intention to show a willingness to suffer indignities in exchange for institutional change. So there's exchange there. There's an unsaid exchange, right? We will suffer. We will do it peacefully. We make a deal with y'all. We'll march peacefully. We'll suffer peacefully. In exchange, you're going to feel bad about yourself, and you're going to change the law. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the plan. This change had to be on paper, in black and white. I believe, personally, that it was a very short-sighted approach that really didn't take into account the blacks in majority urban centers, i.e. ghettos, especially the masses of poor, uneducated blacks. They didn't take into account the, the majority of black folks who lived in these dense, sprawling urban jungles. It's easy, when we think about the civil rights movement, it's really easy to kind of just picture, you know, the marchers singing hymns in the South, and you got the, the racist cops with the thick Southern accent with the dogs and the fire hoses. Those were only a small percentage of black folks. There was a whole nother black community, and they were in the urban centers, in the ghettos, and they were underrepresented, <laughs> underrepresented, underrepresented, in the civil rights movement. In the late 1960s, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality, two of the large organizations that led the movement, imploded. While the two major student organizations fell apart, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference declined. However, historians Waldo E. Martin Jr. Oh, oh by the way, I forgot to mention my sources. <laughs> uh, Mr. Waldo E. Martin Jr. and Joshua Bloom, authors of Blacks Against Empire, a complete history of the uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, and also the Huey P. Newton Reader. So I read all of Huey P. Newton's writings and listened to pretty much all of his speeches in preparation for this podcast series. He was an absolute, he was just a genius. He's, my, he's like my hero. Where was I? However, historians Waldo E. Martin Jr. and Joshua Bloom, in their amazing history of the Black Panther Party, wrote, quote, but the broader, the broader vision of black liberation that had motivated civil rights activists remained salient. Many black people, having won a measure of political incorporation, they organized to win electoral political power. The authors go on to observe that even though much progress had been made, the advances still left a lot to be desired. This was felt the most in the crowded, sprawling urban ghettos of the Northeast, Midwest, and the West Coast. Quote, for many blacks, the civil rights movement's victories proved limited, even illusory especially for young urban blacks in the North and West. Little impacts. They almost never did. The communities were policed by individuals who did not live in the community or even know anyone in the communities. So, of course, right, makes perfect sense, there was little empathy for the residents. Many cities developed containment policing practices. Containment policing practices, keeping the crime in the black communities. Their policing, the goal was, it's almost like a, uh, a corral, right? You're trying to like corral horses or herd goats or herd sheep. The sheep dogs are trying to herd the sheep and try to, uh, you know, keep them in a certain area. That's what the policing was for in the black community. All they really wanted to do was prevent crime from escaping the black community and moving to the white communities. That was their main goal. 
so they didn't really give a crap about the residents, right? These racist tactics were designed to isolate violence into certain predetermined areas, i.e. black communities, rather than actually keeping residents safe. Although blacks were now full citizens on paper, in reality, they were suffering from the residual effects of the Great Migration from the segregated South. Now, does everyone know about the Great Migration? If you don't, look it up. We're going to talk about it a little bit later, right? Many families have fled the South in the hope of finding more economic opportunities. When the temporary economic boom of wartime America ran its course, many black families were left with nothing but the crumbs off the table, right? They moved their entire existence, their entire life. Everything they knew was in Mississippi. They moved from Mississippi to watch California. They were chasing the jobs. There were a lot of good jobs for black folks out there. They went out there. They got a nice house, a nice uh, two, three bedroom house for a pretty good amount of money. They got a, a good job in the factory. The war left. The war ended. We won. And all of a sudden, the jobs left. Nothing left. Although black people were formally full, were formally, meaning they were full citizens, most remained locked into ghettos, impoverished, politically subordinate, and poorly educated, with few channels to have their needs met or complaints heard. Starting in 1966, young blacks in cities across the country took up the call for black power. The black power phenomenon reflected on a complex question. How would black people in America win not only formal citizenship rights, but actual economic and political power? Black power means different things to different people. In fact, dozens of organizations sprung up seeking to attain black power in different ways. However, this is what I observed, at least personally, the black power movement seem to have one major fatal flaw, at least initially. Everyone could agree that mobilization of blacks was the key, but no one knew how to effectively mobilize, right? They knew they needed to, they knew they didn't needed to do something, but no one really knew how to do it and, 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 and what channel and what, what were the, the a good strategy, what were bad strategies. It was a lot of, um, it was a lot of, experimentation during this period into this world the Black Panther Party for self-defense was born out of struggle it is important to note that without the success of the civil rights movement and without its shortcomings and limitations the black power fervor from which the black Panther Party emerged would not have existed. Without the widespread isolation of blacks as a community of Americans deserving representation, there would not have been a Black Panther Party. Without crushing poverty, lack of educational opportunities, and government employment, not to mention the brutally violent repression, of repression by police departments and local authorities across the country add on to this a general sense of anger that's fueled by resentment without all these things the Black Panther Party for self-defense would not have existed without the Vietnam War draft without the war without the bloody brutal unjust, unjust Vietnam War You also got the draft and also the crisis of the legitimacy of the Democratic Party. Few non-black allies would have been available to support the Black Panther Party in their resistance to state repression. Without the Vietnam War, without the threat of the draft, without the brutality and murder of many Vietnamese civilians that was broadcast all across the television, a lot of non-black allies probably would have stayed out of the fight. Without these things, there would be no Black Panther Party. They're all negative things, but all these forces needed to kind of 
be stirred up into this giant cauldron, this hot burning cauldron of, of passion, of, inju of un injustice, injustice, of murder, of repression in order for the Black Panther Party to come out of it, right? Without powerful anti-imperialist allies abroad and at home, the Panthers would not have been able to pool resources and gather significant political capital and the credibility that came with it. So basically what I'm trying to say is they would not have been taken seriously without allies at home that were outside of the black community and allies globally that were outside of the black community. So it's not enough, at least for a black political movement, to just have a bunch of black folks cheering and yelling and following you. You got to have the support across the aisle. You got to have people that don't look like you marching with signs. You got to have people who are college students who are from middle class and upper middle class families on your side. You have to go, be able to be invited like the Black Panther Party was, invited to countries like China, to Algeria, to these nations, to Korea, to these nations to talk with their leaders and discuss things and work out solutions to the American problem, right, of race. All these things help to legitimize the Black Panther Party and helped just increase their voice. Let's talk about black rage. Civil rights mobilization played a central role in defeating legal segregation. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 enfranchised Southern blacks. But for blacks outside of the South, especially in impoverished urban communities, neither significant political or economic gains were made by these civil rights campaigns. Even in the golden age of the civil rights movement, the economic and political exclusion of the black ghetto in the North and the West was never adequately addressed by the mainstream organizations. Mr. Martin and his fabulous book writes, legal, def legal segregation was defeated in the South economic and political empowerment lagged, civil rights strategies lost their punch, and black activists across the country looked for other solutions. Many, including Newton, the founder of the uh, Black Panther Party, and Bobby Seale, the other founder, turned to Malcolm X. In sharp contrast to the nonviolent tactics of the civil rights movement, Malcolm X suggested that black activists embrace a new nationalistic identity that was just a smaller part of a much larger global struggle against western imperialism Malcolm's stance challenged the integrationist policies and politics of the mainstream civil rights movement and it also at the same time violated the strict nation of Islam policy to steer clear of political controversy so while Malcolm was inspiring the masses of young, angry, black revolutionaries and activists, he was also getting in trouble with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam would only allow you to go so far. They hated negative attention, especially from the government. Basically, Malcolm X would bring heat on the Nation of Islam. This is from a famous Malcolm X speech quote Uncle Sam's hands are dripping with blood dripping with the blood of the black man in this country he's the earth's number one hypocrite he has the audacity yes he has imagine he posing as the leader of the free world the free world and you over here singing we shall overcome after all that when he says he is the leader of the free world and you don't even have rights in this country, Malcolm was incensed. He, he couldn't believe that the mainstream civil rights leaders would turn to nonviolence in appeasement as their strategy. Malcolm S. developed a form of revolutionary black nationalism as a minister in the nation of Islam, NOI. When he continued to preach about political subjects, he became increasingly politically outspoken and controversial. His mentor, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, expelled 
Malcolm X from the NOI. Despite his expulsion, Malcolm's influence grew, especially among young blacks, especially those in the ghettos who had not seen the civil rights movement bring any noticeable change in their condition. His passionate words also appealed to the activists who felt betrayed by President Johnson and the federal government. The same politician, President Johnson, who claimed responsibility for giving the blacks the right to vote, also refused to seat black delegates at the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City. Can you believe that? Incredible. This man has a lot of nerve talk about how he loves black folks and you know, he never say he loved them, but how he's all for the cause and he's all for the people. But then he's like, oh, behind your back, oh, I don't like these black folks. I just got to do it because they're making me. That's basically what he did. All right, y'all, we're going to do a quick musical break. We'll be back in a flash. Hey. We don't believe you, cause we the people are still here in the rear, yo, we don't need you. You ain't the killing off good young, young mood. When we get hungry, we eat the same food, the ramen noodle. This simple voodoo is so maniacal, reliable to pull a juju. The irony is that this bad in my lap. She don't tell me she make money, she don't study that. She gon' give it to me, ain't gon' tell me nothing back. She gon' take the brain away the place she spit on. Alright guys, we are back from the musical interlude. We the People by a tribe called Quest. Shout out to all my hip-hop idols that I listen to. I love old school hip-hop. In a fishbowl. All right, all right. (laughs) I could go on all day listening to this great stuff. Okay, so what are we talking about, y'all? Y'all remember? I don't remember. My memory is pretty pretty bad. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. We're talking about President Johnson. All right, so this a-hole, right? I remember at UVA, I wrote a paper about President Johnson. Everyone thinks President Kennedy was the one who really was the civil rights person. It was really Johnson, but Johnson only did it out of political necessity, right? These slick politicians are something else, aren't they? So Johnson, he, it was his influence that pushed the voting rights bill and other bills, civil rights bill, through. The problem was he still had to appease his people. And uh, we're going to talk about it right now. It was a mess. It's gonna. It's a quick kind of side journey that we're going to go on right now, so bear with me because I want to explain the context of this. All right, so what are we talking about? Malcolm's passionate words also appealed to the activists who felt betrayed by President Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson, and the federal government, the same politician who claimed responsibility for allowing blacks to allowing, right? Allowing blacks to vote, also refused to seat black delegates at the 1964 Democratic Party convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey. For context, let's discuss what exactly happened at the 1964 convention in Atlantic City and the events leading up to it. The story begins in Mississippi. As late as 1964, the Democratic Party in Mississippi had excluded blacks, often punishing those bold enough to participate in political life with violence. In response to these injustices, leading Southern civil rights organizers and organizations, they initiated a Freedom Summer campaign. And this campaign It was aimed at incorporating more of the black population of Mississippi into the political process. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, MFDP for short, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, developed as a result of the summer, Freedom Summer campaign, it developed as a grassroots alternative alternative to the Democratic Party. The party included non-blacks and blacks. 
and began registering blacks to vote. Tragically, three of the Freedom Summer activists, Mr. James Cheney, Michael Swerner, and Andrew Goodman were kidnapped, mutilated, and killed. Undaunted, the campaign pushed forward and the MFDP held a state convention in Jackson, Mississippi in early August of 1964. This was dangerous stuff. Y'all don't understand. I don't know if there are any young folks out here or maybe there's some older folks that can educate the youth. Mississippi was not a place you played around in. All right. They were quick. They were quick to beat you, to hang you, to drag you, to shoot you. The KKK was extremely active. And as I've said in my previous podcast, usually the southern states with the highest black populations were the most violent states because the whites there really, really felt threatened by black achievement, by black legal advancements. All right, so they didn't want their power to go away and they would do anything to keep it, to keep the uh, status quo in, you know, held in check. So, undaunted, the campaign pushed forward and the MFDP held a state convention in Jackson, Mississippi in early August of 1964 and they selected 68 delegates to attend the upcoming Democratic National Convention. President Johnson, the self-proclaimed savior of the black American movement, <laughs> yeah, right, determined that despite his public stance supporting the civil rights movement, he needed to keep a tight hold on Southern white support. So he actively worked to undermine the MFDP. In fact, he refused to even discuss the MFDP with civil rights leaders and even instructed FBI Director Edward J. Hoover to monitor the party and to give regular updates on its dealings. Almost immediately, it became clear that the MFDP would not win enough support to seat its delegation in Atlantic City. The MFDP leaders hoped that public scrutiny would garner a strong voter turnout at the local level, and this would at least force an open vote on the convention floor, and this would help seat the delegates. Using Vice President Hubert Humphrey as a tool, as a manipulative tool, manipulative tool, and as a distraction, President Johnson lured the leaders of the MFPD, MFDP into a meeting to discuss a compromise. While in the meeting, the vice president offered a deal. The MFDP would not be seated, but in exchange, educated professionals from the delegation, the president of the NAACP and white minister Ed King would be given seats alongside the all-white Mississippi delegation from the main Democratic Party. So what what they were trying to do, the MFDP, was basically get blacks to be included in the Democratic political process in Mississippi. Now, the white Mississippi power structure, they didn't want this to happen. And Lyndon Johnson did not want this to happen. So they used Vice President Hubert Humphrey to as a distraction, as a... Um, yeah, <laughs> pretty much as a distraction, as a manipulative tool to distract the leaders. They had a fake meeting, a false meeting, where they offered a fake compromise. When the leaders denied it, right in the middle of the meeting, it was announced that, oh, yeah, they, they, uh, they agreed, guys. All right, let me read on. So while in the meeting, the vice president offered a deal, the MFDP would not be seated. But in exchange, educated professionals from the delegation, the president of the NAACP, and white minister Ed King would be given seats alongside the all-white Mississippi Democratic delegation. Adding insult to injury, the MFDP had not even been consulted on the compromise offer until the meeting. And while in the meeting with the Trojan horse Humphrey, Walter Mondale, the head of the Democratic Party committee, announced that the MFDP had accepted the offer. This was how badly Johnson wanted to appease the white Southern politicians. The MFDP officials were furious, storming out of the meeting and slamming the door in the vice president's face. So what they did was a ropey dope, right? 
They lured them into a fake meeting while they're discussing a compromise. Meanwhile, that gave the perfect opportunity for Walter Mondale to go out there and say, hey, yeah, yeah, they're good. They accepted the offer when they didn't accept anything. It was just a distraction to get them away from the convention. So the reason why I bring this up is that Malcolm X was really hitting on all these different groups within the black community because there were still people in the urban centers that still believed in Johnson. They still believed in the Democratic Party, that they had their best interests in mind. And this was proof. This was clear-cut proof that even though this person had did all these pretty good things for the black community, he still did not put them first. He was still way down on his list of priorities. Malcolm X harnessed the resentment of the black masses who were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Quote, and now you're facing a situation where the young Negroes coming up and they don't want to hear that turn the other cheek stuff. No, there's a new deal coming. There's a new thinking coming in. There's a new strategy coming in. It will be Molotov cocktails this month, hand grenades next month, and something else next month. It will be ballots or bullets. It will be liberty or it will be death. The only difference about this kind of death, it will be reciprocal. Malcolm S was ready to go. He was ready to throw hands. He was pissed. At this point, everyone knew that none of the white power structure had black people's goals and interests in mind. Nobody. So he was really the, the, the father, the godfather of the black power movement. Let's talk about urban life. Let's talk about urban life in the 1960s. Now, you guys are going to hear some really disturbing stuff in this segment. It might be upsetting to some folks, all right? So listener discretion advised, all right? In the 1960s, most black families like the Newtons, Huey P. Newton, and the Seals, Bobby Seals family, they faced poverty. After migrating thousands of hard miles from the segregated South to cities in the North and West to meet the demand for wartime jobs, thousands of black workers were simply abandoned, left for dead when the war ended and the jobs vanished with them. Most of the remaining jobs fled the cities along with the white population, a demographic phenomenon known as white flight. This flight away from the cities by whites left sprawling black ghettos in its wake. These centers of urban decay were pockmarked by substandard housing, inferior and overcrowded schools, violent crime, and steadily rising levels of drug and alcohol abuse. To make things worse, black were largely denied their rightful share of political power and economic advancement. As anyone who's well-schooled in crime or economics will tell you, the linkage between poverty and crime is a real one. As unemployment skyrocketed, unfortunately, so did crime. And white urban politicians reacted very badly to this. Instead of focusing on economic solutions that were meant to beef up local businesses and industry, thus creating new jobs, these politicians, they decided to use strategies of containment. Police patrols were beefed up, and the crime problem was attacked with waves of stormtroopers, police with instruction to shoot or club first. Ask questions later. Ironically, while President Johnson bragged and boasted about the success of the Civil Rights Act, the poverty, political exclusion, police brutality, and desperation of ghetto life had only gotten worse. Not surprisingly, many young urban activists rejected civil rights politics as ineffective and were drawn by the intense magnetism and dynamic speaking ability of Malcolm X. When Malcolm X was gunned down tragically in Harlem during a speech in February of 1965, he came to symbolize the struggle for black liberation. Malcolm's assassination proved, it proved to some that civil rights movement, that the civil rights movement promised but could not deliver. They could not deliver the goods. They had sweet talks, they marched, they sang, they said all this stuff, but in the end it didn't matter. After Malcolm's death, his status grew to almost mythical status and his influence expanded dramatically. Quote, 
He came to be far more than a martyr for the militant separatist faith. He became a black power paradigm, the architect, reference point, and spiritual advisor in absence for a generation of Afro-American activists. In August of 1965, the Watts neighborhood in Los Angeles exploded in one of the largest urban rebellions in U.S. history. The demographics of Watts in the mid-20th century was heavily black, and this is because migrants began moving into Watts in the 1920s, and this created a black island of sorts in a larger sea of mostly white towns such as Southgate, Linwood, Compton, and Bell. The reason for the isolation of the black population had a lot to do with sneaky and insidious racist at its core home lending regulations which excluded blacks from obtaining mortgages to buy homes in white areas. By 1945, get this, by 1945, Watts was 80% black, 80%. Black migration continued steadily throughout the 1950s. In fact, more blacks migrated to California than any other state. While the black population in New York doubled during the same period, Detroit's tripled, the LA population increased by eight, eight. As expected, this influx of black folks spooked white homeowners and they fled in droves for the suburbs, taking money and employment opportunities with them. Oh my goodness. They took everything, man. They were scared of black folks. In short, the rapid rise in the black population combined with a lack of jobs and increases of crime were relatively, within relatively small areas, created a powder keg type environment. So, let me read that again, all right? As expected, this influx of black folks, it spooked the white homeowners, and they fled in droves for the suburbs. They took their money and their employment opportunities with them, so they left nothing. In short, the rapid rise in the black population, combined with lack of jobs and an increase in crime within a relatively small area, because the area was not big, right? So all this stuff is happening in a pretty small area. Created a powder keg type environment. In particular, tensions in, uh, between Watts residents and the police ran really high. While the huge majority of Watts residents were black in 1965, only 4% of the Los Angeles Police Department and 6% of the LA County Sheriff's Department were black. Police Chief William Parker what he did was he used crime data stats, quote, stats, to make excuses. The reason why... The reason why I did this episode was because I really wanted to set the stage for where the Black, the black Panthers were going to walk into. All right? I wanted to set the stage, uh, you know, discuss the world that birthed the Black Panther Party for self-defense. It was a very brutal world, a very violent world, a very poor world, where black folks had even less rights than they had. Well, shoot, we had, we're, like, we're living like kings now compared to how black folks back then were treated. Um, you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's tough to talk about sometimes, but we got to discuss why these movements happen and what... Uh, what environment that they came to age in is very important. That's all I got for today, guys. All right. It's about 48 minutes. It was this is just an introduction. This is nothing. All right. Thank you for joining me, guys. I really appreciate you. Hey, listen, we're going to really dive into some deep stuff, some philosophy. So um, what I'm going to start doing, is I'm going to start doing outlines and releasing them. So I'm going to do some some overall uh kind of uh, analysis of some of these concepts and I'm going to put them out there so everyone can read them. So I'm going to do the podcast. I'm also do my own outline written uh, that kind of explains the philosophy of these movements in a more, you know, average person, uh, non-freaking intellectual way because we really need to understand in a basic way. All right, guys. Love y'all. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Join us next time. Ape.
You know how we think Organize the hood under our ching banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I take a slug for the cause like Huey P While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live Able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street Where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help all right, guys, stay positive. Put God and your family first. Get after it. Never quit. Keep working hard. No matter what anyone tells you, keep pushing forward. You can overcome anything. If you believe in God and you keep working, you never give up. God bless y'all. Check out our Black Panther series. There's going to be four parts. It's coming up soon. We're going to go and we're going to get after it. Ape out. No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more, bondage. no more secret space launches, government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets, could have been invested in the future for my comrades, battle com- Ape. Out y'all, peace.